You know, I should have known something was up. This weekend, my back just started flaring up for no reason. I was in pain all weekend in my lower back. Me, the wife, and the kids jumped in the car today. Drove 45 minutes to go to the nearest decent mall (laughs) that we have around here. And uh, I kind of sort of got duped into opening up a credit card, which really annoyed me. Not going to get into the details of that. But these things are kind of leading me to believe that this maybe just wasn't my weekend. I was focused on watching Game 7 between the Suns and the Mavericks today. And let me tell you, I can't think of a more colossal letdown (laughs) as a fan, man. If anybody's been following this outlet for longer than six minutes, you know that one of the pillars, one of the one of the primary individuals that I hold up through this outlet is one Christopher Emmanuel Paul. And I have written thousands of words defending him. I've written pieces defending him. I have written tweets. I mean, how many tweets have you guys seen about Chris Paul from this outlet? A lot. I know. More than even I would care to do, actually. But I'm aware. And then I've got on a podcast and I've raved about him many times going back to last year even. This was one of the most unbelievable, disappointing moments I've ever experienced as a fan. What happened tonight at Footprint? Is it Footprint Center? I think they call it the Footprint Center. A horrible name for an arena. And a horrible performance was put on by the alleged best team in basketball tonight. This is me trying to get through it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to podcast my way through it, y'all. I'm just going to power through it. And hopefully there will be better days ahead. This is Jay Hicks with the Hip Hop Sports Support Podcast. Coming to you in a devastated state on, on a Sunday night. Um, May the 15th, man, I have so much to say. I don't even know where to begin, y'all. I didn't take any notes. I didn't, you know, the only prep I did was watch the game and then just trying not to be in the fetal position, you know, as the game was going on. I guess that was probably my preparation for this podcast. I, I mean, it was stunning. It was a stunning turn of events and i have a lot to say about it and i want to talk a little bit about the other nba playoff matchups um briefly anyways uh and you know i'm not gonna talk about kendrick lamar's new album on this podcast i'll probably have a i'm gonna let that breathe a little bit and i'll probably have um some a guest on to discuss that in greater detail but uh i just want to focus on the nba playoffs i know we've done a lot of nfl content lately and the in the playoffs have been going by and it's as you guys know, it's hard to find time to do these things uh, in my in this current season of life for myself. But this was one I couldn't afford to pass up because I'm the first person to tell you guys about how awesome Chris Paul is when he's awesome. And he's awesome a lot. This was not awesome. Decidedly not awesome. <laughs> and I want to get into it. Um, I want to, you know, the legacy thing, like, I, I it drives me nuts as a consumer of sports media 
when we want to have the legacy conversation after every game, after every playoff game, after every series even. Because usually one series to the next doesn't make or break someone's playoff legacy. I mean, rarely does that happen. But there was something happened tonight that that I'm going to get into. Um, If you find the podcast, I appreciate you finding it. Please uh, like and rate us. Give us the best rating you can humanly possible. Uh, Because it takes a lot of courage to come up here to the microphone and talk tonight. (laughs) This is arguably the most courageous thing I've done in like five years. Was get on the podcast immediately in the aftermath of that epic shit bomb that the phoenix suns just laid um yeah this 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 took this took guts y'all this this took guts i'm like kirk gibson right now hobbling to the plate in the bottom of the eighth inning or whatever it was um i guess it was bottom nine wasn't it um yeah i have a lot i want to get to uh i'm gonna get to chris paul specifically in great detail in a moment I guess just talking about the game itself in the series, and I'm going to talk about the East playoffs too, but just talking about the game in the series itself. Um, as a fan, as somebody who, you know, I, I had a vested interest in the series because I do support Chris Paul and because, you know, you root for your picks. You know what I mean? If you get into this business, not that I'm in any kind of business per se, but when you start your own outlet, you, and you make predictions you want those predictions to come true because they make you look right now i don't i don't i've been accused of putting my support of my predictions ahead of my own fandom um which is not true uh in the past like i, I would never i would never like root for like if i picked the the a cleveland sports team to lose for example I would not do that and then root for the team, root for the Cleveland team to lose. I would not do that. I would not root for the Cleveland team to fail so that I would look smart. No, forget all that. I'd much rather be wrong and have my team win, for sure. Um, But I did also root for the Suns because I picked them to come out of the West. I picked them to win the NBA championship. I I had them before the season started. I said, they're going to get back and they're going to win it this year. Uh, I really believed in them last year. And uh, they came close but didn't get it done. But I thought this was going to be the year for them. Um, this just feels like a bad dream if you were supporting the Suns on any level. Like, this is just a nightmare scenario. Uh, I guess I have to start by crediting the Dallas Mavericks. And, the I mean, they won tonight by 33 points. Um, it was astounding. But, uh, and, that, and, that, and that, was being, that was them being nice. I mean, the Mavericks were nice enough to allow the Suns to score 40 points in the fourth quarter to make that 90 points look remotely respectable. But this was the second largest loss by a team with the best record in the elimination game in NBA history. Oh, they had some wild stats on TNT about this game. Just, I mean, the, the, the Suns were down by 46 points at one point. Uh, I think it's just like all-time stuff, like all-time collapse and choke job is what this was. But again, let me get back to the Mavs right quick. I want to give them credit. Uh, Luca was Luca. He was very, very good, if not great, for pretty much the entire series. Uh, Phoenix never had an answer for him. As someone who picked the Suns, I never really expected them to have an answer for Luca per se. I didn't know that he would, you know, dominate every single game. But like, I don't even think that what Luca did was like a transparent 
or, or like a tra- excuse me a transcendent great player performance like now i mean i know the numbers might suggest otherwise like he had amazing like scintillating sparkling numbers in the series luka Doncic did so i don't want to minimize that but when you just watched the game i mean what this was not even this last game the last couple games this was not Giannis in the finals last year against phoenix Giannis scored 50 in a closeout game made all of his free throws just about and, and, and was unguardable, untouchable the entire game in the closeout game and was making clutch plays in the two previous games. I mean, cl- clutch plays on defense, clutch plays on offense. That's not what this was. So as great as Luka was, you know, a lot of people, or maybe not a lot because I don't think a lot of people picked the Mavericks, but if anybody picked the Mavericks to win this series, they did so with the belief that Luka would just carry them to victory. And that he was such a great force of nature that the Suns, who don't have a player to match up to him, just wouldn't stand a chance. If you pick the Dallas Mavericks based on that criteria, congratulations to you. But I would say to you that you ought to be picking them to win the NBA championship at this point. Because I don't know if there's another player left playing in the playoffs that's as good as Luka is. I mean, I think Luka's better than anybody on Miami. If you want to argue Steph Curry's better than Luka, I'll listen to it. But, I mean, I don't think Steph's playing better than Luka right now. Nobody on Golden State is playing better than Luka right now. And Jason Tatum, I think, might be the most worthy adversary right now because we know Tatum plays on both ends of the floor. He can get you 40, he can get you 50, and he can shut down your best player. So uh, a Tatum versus Luka matchup in the finals would be would be pretty tantalizing, I must say. But, I mean... If you're if you're a Dallas Mavericks fan, you're not scared of any of those guys. Like I don't think at this point, knowing that you're going in with the with 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 the top dog right now, which appears to be Luka Doncic, as far as the players that are left in the finals, or excuse me, left in the playoffs, because you know we know LeBron is out, KD's out, Jokic is out, Embiid is out. Uh, I mean, this is Giannis is out, Chris Paul, Booker are out. Like there's a lot of guys that are out now, and if you believe that Dallas was going to beat Phoenix because they had the best player on the court. It's a little short-sighted because we've seen teams with the best player on the court not win a series. We saw that at 5 o'clock this afternoon when, when the Bucks lost. So it doesn't always quite work that way, but oftentimes it does. But usually, if the better player is going up against the superior team, the superior team wins. I felt that's what we saw in games 1 and 2 of this series, where Phoenix was basically in total control from start to finish of games 1 and 2. As it turned out, things things would change. But you have to give the Mavs credit. Um, I think defensively, I think the Mav, I, w- I was more impressed with the Ma- what the Mavs did defensively than offensively. I mean, offensively they're getting you know a lot of credit. They, they shot up a lot of threes and they made a lot. Um, they were like plus ninety from behind the arc. I think for the series over Phoenix, something like that. That's hard to overcome. Uh, so you want to you know, and you you had a game here or there. You know, Kleba started off hot and then. Finney Smith had the th- the game with eight threes, and then by the end of the series, it was Spencer Dinwiddie that was coming up big, and Jalen Brunson had a couple good games in the middle. So the guys were stepping up here and there for Dallas, um, much more in the last five games of the series than the first two, where Jason Kidd was pleading with somebody to join Luka at the party or something like that. But I don't even, you know, I was more impressed with what Dallas did on defense because 
they shut down Phoenix in game six. They shut down Phoenix in game seven, which they had not shut them down at all in the games in Arizona. When they were playing in Texas, it was a different story. But in Arizona, Phoenix had their way with Dallas, and yet the Mavericks found a way to completely shut down the Suns. And, and the Suns were flummoxed. I mean, they had no answers. And that was bothersome as somebody who was, again, rooting for the Suns. You know, they say you cut off the head of the snake and the body will die. You could argue that the head of the snake for the Suns is Booker or Paul. Um, and I think that's what part of what makes Phoenix great. On any given night, one of those guys can beat you and, and be great. And we've seen that in these playoffs. But one thing that I noticed right away was how pretty much after the first game or the first or second game, but very early in the series, Dallas just made up their mind that they were not going to give up any mid-range jumpers, especially to Chris Paul. They weren't going to give up any mid-range jumpers to anybody. And they, they found a way to game plan to take the mid-range jumper out of Phoenix's arsenal, which was a major part of their offensive flow, if not the biggest part. I mean, everybody knows that Phoenix is a mid-range jump shooting team, and it's worked for them. They found a way to disrupt Phoenix's favorite play, which is Chris Paul, pick and roll, snake dribble to the right, elbow pull-up jumper. The Suns don't run that like every trip down, but they, they did run that quite a bit in the second half of games. And we know Chris likes to pick his spots when he wants to be aggressive and when he wants to score. Well, that was absolutely taken away, uh, particularly in the last five games of the series. I don't know that Chris Paul had more than three shots like that for the rest of the series after game two. Snake dribble right, you know, to the right hand, elbow jumper. Like, I don't think we saw that. We didn't see that anymore. He took one tonight that I remember in the first half, and he, it rimmed out. And that was like the – I don't even think he was off of pick and roll even. But he got to his spot, and he rimmed it. And then and, and that was like, you know, um, foreshadowing for things to come. What was annoying, though, as, again, someone who was picking the Suns to win the game was – Phoenix had virtually no counter to that. And I, I'm not an NBA coach. I didn't break down the tape. You know, I don't, I don't know anything like that. But there was virtually no counter whatsoever that we saw from the Suns. It looked like once the Mavericks took that away from Paul and the Suns, it was like the Suns were just like, all right, I guess Chris ain't going to score then. As if they didn't need his points. Like, no, they very much need Chris Paul scoring, especially in the playoffs. Like, they need him to be averaging. You know, it was cool for him to coast around 15 points a game during the regular season. In the playoffs, he, need, he needs to be up around 20 for this team to, to really thrive. And you saw the aggressiveness from CP3 wane considerably in the last five games, which is ironically when he turned 37 years old. Uh, everything went downhill after that. In the last five games of the series, Chris took nine shots, four shots. That was the game where he fouled out. Eight shots, seven shots, eight shots. So there was a clear lack of aggression. Games one and two, he took 13 and 16 shots respectively. That's about on par with what you would expect. And what happened? He scored 19 and 28 points 
respectively. In game two, you remember he took over in the fourth quarter doing the Chris Paul thing again where he just destroys everybody, and he just was picking on Luka, and they had no answer. So to see how the series turned is pretty shocking still. But to go from averaging about you know 14 and a half shots a game to down to about six or seven shots a game in the last five games, that is stunning. And I'm like, is it is it all because they – they took away that mid-range jumper. Like Chris couldn't get to the rim. Chris couldn't shake anybody in you know one-on-one. Chris couldn't find his, you know, he couldn't find any shooting pockets on in, you know from three and have anybody set him up. There was just no answer. He couldn't get to the foul line. Nothing. Like it just was not happening offensively for Chris Paul. And you have to give the Mavericks a ton of credit for that. Dorian Finney-Smith, Reggie Bullock, getting up in him, adding pressure to him. Uh, and, and it was a lot of ball pressure just in general on the Suns. Kind of sped up the Suns. The Suns like to play quick anyways in the half court. They play as fast as any in the half court as any team that I can ever remember, maybe since the seven seconds or less, less Suns from back in the day. You know, it's different when you play fast in the half court and you're getting open looks versus you're playing fast in the half court and everything is shut down. Then when you play fast and you're not making shots, then it just feels like you're 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 just you're just out here throwing up garbage, um, and so you know you have to give Dallas credit, give Jason Kidd a ton of credit, and and here comes the backhanded part. <laughs> Even though I want to give them a ton of credit, I don't think the Mavericks were that good, y'all. Do you? I I mean they were they were ripe for the beating. Like I don't give a, I don't give a damn about Luca being there or not. Apart from the fact that the Suns convincingly won games one and two, and then won game five by like thirty. After game five, they went into game six, and I swear, go back and look at the crowd at the beginning of the, of games three and four in Dallas versus the beginning of game six in Dallas. They were not the same. Maybe because it was a weekend vibe versus a weekday vibe. I don't know what it was. But those crowds were not the same. Dallas came out very shaky in game six. They were very nervous in game six. I promise you. Go back and look at it. They got off to a slow start shooting the ball. And all it took was somebody from Phoenix to come out aggressively, get some buckets, you know, and, and I think Dallas would have been like, oh, shit, like, I think we're in trouble. I really believe that. It just took one player, one guy to kind of come out and be like, you know what, we're not going to have, we're, we're, we're not going to do this. We're not screwing around with y'all. We're going to put y'all away. We just beat y'all by 32 nights ago. We're not about to sit up here and, and do this game with y'all and, and let y'all get us in on our court in a game seven. No, we're going to take y'all out now. It just took one guy for Phoenix to do that. And nobody did it. You know, and as the game wore on, Dallas is bricking shots to start. But as the game wore on, they got more and more comfortable and they got more and more confident because they're playing at home. And we know the old cliche about role players playing at home, but it's true. And eventually the role players and the shots started falling in game six. And Dallas got their confidence back. Phoenix Never got their confidence back in Game Six, and the and the and the jumpers just continued to brick. It was almost as if they 
saw everything that was going to happen in front of them happening at the start of game six. Like they knew that, okay, if we lose this game, y'all, now we got to go back to our place and now we got to deal with all these game seven expectations and we were the best team in the league and uh, we don't want that. And so like, that's kind of how it felt. Like they knew they, they played like they knew that was hanging over them in game six. And when, by the time game seven got here, it was more of the same. And then if you look at game seven, once again, Phoenix comes out like trash. They're missing everything. They're missing layups. They're missing mid-range jumpers. They're missing threes. Jay Crowder's taking all the shots to start the game. Devin Booker's looking for contact instead of trying to actually make a basket. All these things, just it wasn't clicking for the Suns. It wasn't working. Chris Paul was being passive. All of it was bad, right? But Dallas wasn't really killing it outside of Luka. So Luka came out in game seven. He was busting, right? And so we saw that he hit a couple of uh, threes early on. But even after the first timeout, the score was like 10 to 5. So if Phoenix comes out and gets a basket and a stop, then they got the ball and, you know, they're down three or two. I mean, like, it's, a, it's a game. It's a ball game. Like, it's the first quarter. Nothing to worry about. And just settle in. Because with all the tenseness of these game sevens, and sometimes you can even feel it as a fan. You're just tense watching the game, of course. But, like, with all that, oftentimes, after a few minutes, they, both teams settle in and a basketball game breaks out. That's usually what happens. Usually you don't see a team drown on live television. And that's what the Suns did. They drowned in their own expectations Shaquille O'Neal was on TV tonight on Inside the NBA, and he was saying, I just think it was just one of those nights for the Suns where just nothing dropped and nothing went down. And there is some truth to that, but I like minuscule amount of truth to that because I believe that this was a situation where this team could not handle the expectations. I learned, I gained a greater uh, uh, appreciation for Phil Jackson, y'all, a few years back. Granted, you know, everybody loves Phil Jackson just because of you know, the, all the accomplishments and 11 titles and all that stuff. And, you know, he was winning titles in, like, the ABA or whatever as a coach and won two with the Knicks as a player. So, like, we know the guy's got a, 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 a fistful of rings at the house. But as a fan, what I learned from watching the Cavaliers in 2009 and 2010, I learned that the hardest thing to do in sports is to win when you're supposed to win. Playing with expectations and living up and surpassing those expectations is very difficult. And we saw it crumble those Cavs teams. We saw it crumble the Cleveland Browns. My, my beloved Brownies crumbled them. Look at the last four years. The two years that nobody expected them to do anything, they played well. The third year, they made the playoffs. But if you look at year two and year four, when they were coming off of those good seasons, they sputtered. And they never could get their footing. And that's what we see oftentimes from teams. It's, it's hard to win with expectations. Like, I mean, like, granted, it's a good problem to have, right? Like, if you have the best team on paper, like, if, you have, if you're the 2017 Warriors and you got KD, Steph, and Clay or whatever on your team, like, yeah, I would sign up for that as a fan. But I'm just here to tell you, it's not easy to win with expectations all the time. We saw it crumble the Miami Heat the first year. It basically killed LeBron three straight years. (laughs) From 2009 to 2011, it killed LeBron James. And he's the greatest player we've had since Jordan. 
And the expectations even got to him. And that's a guy, LeBron, who in his had ESPN coming to his games in high school and he was dominating uh, Oak Hill Academy at a game that I went to at Cleveland State. This was a guy who in his first NBA game scored 25 points, put on a show in Sacramento. His first playoff game against the Washington Wizards in 05, triple-double. Like, LeBron had always lived up to expectations, which is what made what he did uh, in, and even, in, even through 2009, he was fine, but the team crumbled to the expectations. And then in 2010, you had game five against Boston in the second round. And then obviously 2011, the finals against Dallas was a whole other world of, of choking, right? And so it's not hard to lose when, when all the pressure's on you. It's not hard to lose in that scenario. And it doesn't take much for it's you know it's it's fragile man it's it's a fragile thing it doesn't take much it's like imagine trying to walk up a flight of stairs with a glass of water and the water's filled to the brim and you can't spill a drop like that's that's how fragile it can be and it just takes one or two things here or there a, a random role player gets hot for the other team or you know something weird happens and then all of a sudden it flips it flips on you and that's what happened to Phoenix um this was an atrocity. This was, this was a cataclysmic disaster with the Phoenix Suns experience. I can't remember a better team in the regular season flaming out worse in the playoffs than they did. In the second round against a team with basically one great player and a bunch of role guys who are okay. I mean, who's kidding who? Dorian Finney-Smith, I like him. He's all right. Bullock, Jalen Brunson, Jalen Jalen Brunson going to leave here and get a max contract? I mean, maybe because teams are dumb, but like he's not he's not about to take y'all to the promised land, Jalen Brunson. Like, oh, we got we got a top five point guard now. Like, no, he don't even do most of the point guard duties. Luca does all that. Spencer Dinwiddie, the guy who was a cast off by the Wizards, like that guy. I mean, he's a nice player, but again, these guys are not stars. They're not superstars. They're, they're not all NBA players. They're not anything that would make you question Phoenix's ability to take care of business here, especially when you have a team like the Suns, who kept drawing comparisons to the 2014 Spurs, coming off of a finals defeat that was even more narrow than people give it credit for. The Suns had the best record in the NBA, the best record in franchise history, Chris Paul was top five MVP candidate last year. Devin Booker was a top five MVP candidate this year. Mikael Bridges finished second in defensive player of the year voting. Monty Williams won coach of the year. Cam Johnson was third in sixth man of the year. I mean, I mean, what are we doing here? <laughs> James Jones is probably going to win executive of the year. Like, what are we doing here? Like, all these accolades, you know, this team had all year to read their press clippings. And... It would have been one thing as we pivot now fully on the Suns again. It'd be one thing if the Suns had never faced any adversity. But they had a little adversity, right? I mean, they they had to deal with a, a little smaller stretch where Devin Booker was injured. They had to deal with a significant stretch during the season when Chris Paul was injured. They had to deal with Devin Booker getting hurt in the first round. They had to deal with a ton of injuries in the playoffs in their run last year. They had to deal with the agony of blowing a 2-0 lead in the finals last year against the Bucks, And they bounced back from that. I mean, this team had uh, overcome a lot. Even in the first round, we saw Booker get hurt. 
um, they had a feisty young New Orleans team who was playing with nothing to lose up in their grill, and it was like, okay, this is the jolt. This is the wake-up call. Like the Suns, they played around a little bit, but they got out of that series. This is what they needed. That's going to snap them back into reality, let them know that, okay, the playoffs have started, and we're about to handle business against the Dallas Mavericks, who, again, have just one dope dude and a bunch of guys. And that's just not what happened. Something seemed off with the Suns, even in that Pelican series. They just didn't seem right. Even coming into today, I'm like, well, damn, like, the Suns won 64 games. They were 64 and 18. They had one of the best road records in NBA history this year. And they came into this game tonight. It's like in the playoffs, they've been like, what, seven and five or something like that. And it's like, was that, I mean, I know Book missed a couple of games, but it's like, was that that impressive seven and five overall? Like this team didn't lose three games in a row all year. They were dominant, dominant, top three offensively and defensively. There's just no way to have seen this outcome coming. I don't care how much of a Mavericks fan you are. I don't care how much of a Luka fan you are. Nobody saw this coming. And this had less to do with Luka's greatness and the Mavericks than it did the Suns just folding under pressure. Um, For the game... Devin Booker was not great. So just just looking at this bloodbath of a box score, Devin Booker was three of three of fourteen in this game. Um, I know he likes to do the. He, he's a big Kobe believer. He's in the mom mentality and all that stuff. I, I know all that. Book was three for fourteen. Uh, I talked to my man Terry Palmer the other day on I think it was on Saturday before the game, and he was like, "Man, Booker, I don't know, man. I, I don't know if that guy's consistent enough." And I'm like, "He'll be alright. He's good. He's good." And Booker is good, but it did not come together for him tonight. And um, and as you recall, I went on the podcast last summer, and I pinned the finals loss on him. Because uh, although a lot of people pinned it on Chris Paul, contrary to popular belief, Chris had one bad game in the series. Booker had two really bad games in the series. And just overall was not himself. But Chris, despite dealing with a litany of injuries actually was the best player in the finals for Phoenix. And so uh, Booker wasn't great. DeAndre Ayton was invisible for most of the game. He only played 17 minutes tonight, y'all. And I heard there was a report that he was, they asked uh, Monty Williams why he only played 17 minutes. And he just said internal, it was internal. And that was it, which is pretty frightening considering that this guy's about to be a free agent. I don't know if he's restricted or not, but um, I would retain his services if I was the Suns, but knowing the Suns' history and their ownership group and how cheap they can be and this embarrassing defeat that they suffered tonight, I just, I can't, I cannot, (laughs) I cannot overstate how embarrassing of a choke job this was. But yeah, 8 and 17 minutes and a good look. But all right, that, that's enough. That's all preamble. Uh, I mean, like the the, the 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 I mean, you know, Cameron Payne was great. Remember when Cameron Payne was balling last year in the playoffs, and people were like, they should bring Chris Paul off the bench and start Cameron Payne. People were saying that crazy shit. Um, he was a no show the entire playoffs. Cameron Johnson, basically a no show the entire playoffs. I mean, 
I haven't Cam Johnson between last the start of last season and this season, the worst stretch of basketball by far I've ever seen him play was these these playoff games. These what whatever they played, 13 playoff games. These were the worst set of games that I've ever seen Cam Johnson play since the start of last season. Mikael Bridges, not only was he getting lit up by Luka, but he shot 3 for 11 today, 0 for 3 on threes. It was a minus 40 in the plus minus. The plus minus numbers are just, I mean, they'll just make your eyes hurt if you read it for Phoenix. Um, I mean, Devin Booker was a minus 41. They got a shower after watching this game. Uh, But let's get into it, man. Chris Paul, all right? I know this is what y'all really wanted to hear me talk about. Because, again, I am the biggest Chris Paul apologist you'll find. This side of Ryan Rossillo. Um, And I have been... I mean, I've defended this guy to the hill. The only athlete... The only present-day athlete that I've probably defended more is Tom Brady. The difference between Chris Paul and Tom Brady is that Tom Brady has accomplished everything and people still try to discredit him. Chris Paul, although I feel like it's unjust... You know, or I think that there's explanations that are plausible as to why he hasn't had the team success that you would think he would have had. He just doesn't have the resume. I mean, there's holes. There's holes in the resume there. Uh, Brady's as airtight as it gets, and people still try to make up reasons to say he's not dope. But CP3 is, I believe, basically everything you could ask for in a point guard. I think he's an exceptional leader. He can shoot. He can dribble. He's the best passer other than maybe LeBron we've had probably since Magic Johnson. Um, I would throw Jason Kidd into that conversation also, but there is very few, and Steve Nash, but there's very few guys that we've seen past the rock like Chris Paul. His understanding of the game, his basketball IQ is, it wrecks the scale. Like it's off the charts, Chris Paul's IQ. Um, His competitiveness when you talk about the all-time great competitors, they don't really talk about Chris Paul that much. I would put him up there with Kobe and Jordan and just those list of maniacal competitors. But the reason Chris Paul doesn't get aligned with those guys because he doesn't have the success, the team success to back it up, right? So you can't call him as great of a competitor as Kobe Bryant when Kobe has five titles and Chris has none. But that's just playing the results. Okay, I believe that Chris is as competitive and driven as anybody. I really believe that. And his game has no holes. I mean, again, he's not as quick as he used to be. He was cat quick when he first came into the league, but he can still change pace. He can still play the game with pace. He gets to his spots. Again, uh, I mean, he's, he's really right-hand dominant, but, I mean, he, he can go left. He can go right, he can handle the rock, he can shoot at mid-range, long range. He's dynamic in crunch time, regardless or contrary to popular belief. He's historically dynamic in crunch time. There are very few players of this generation that you'd rather have on your team in a close game than Chris Paul. Okay? And so all that said, the, I mean, this this series is the biggest black mark on Chris Paul's entire NBA career. This is a stain that I don't think there's not enough shout in the world to shout out this stain. You know what I'm saying? This what he what he did 
or didn't do in these games. Now, maybe he's injured. There's some speculation that he was hurt, and he's hurt all the time. You know what I mean? And that's the one caveat that I've always given in his defense is, hey, man, if you want to hate on Chris for not being able to stay healthy during a playoff run, be my guest because I have no recourse against that. But what we're not going to do is talk about his ability or talent or his inability to rise to the occasion in big moments because he's done it time and time again. He just doesn't get the credit for it. Okay? But this series was a different animal. It was a different animal. And I don't know, you know, again, I don't know if he was hurt. I've heard some speculation. He dinged his finger at the end of game six. Uh, I heard that he was limping out of the arena tonight. You know, who knows? Last year, he got surgery on his wrist after the finals, and people didn't even realize that he was playing with a wrist that required surgery, and that didn't come out until, like, this year. So there's a decent chance he could be hiding an injury, but we can't make excuses for this. I mean, in this six-game series, Chris Paul averaged 13 points, under six assists, three turnovers a game, which for him is a lot, He had a seven turnover game in game three in Dallas. He had a four turnover game in game five at home. And then he had a five turnover game in game six. So when we talk about Chris and he's had these games where it's like 20 assists, zero turnovers, like he's had games like that. You know, you have to factor into the turnover, like the turnovers matter. Um, Several of those, several turnovers he had, were were uh, offensive fouls, it seemed like, uh, in this series. But his lack of scoring, the, the drop-off from 19 in Game 1, 28 in Game 2, and then 12, 5, 7, 13, and 10 to close the series. He actually shot the ball decently from the floor. The only game in this entire series that he didn't shoot the ball well was Game 5, and he only shot... 37.5%, but that was on three of eight shooting. So if he takes another one, he's up to 50%, and assuming he makes it. But it was the inability for him to find his offense. It was, it was his inability to generate offense for his team because we know he's the maestro. He's the conductor. But he didn't conduct anything but uh, an epic loss in this game. Now, well, here's where it, gets, where it gets a little tricky, too. I've given this a lot of thought and because I've never understood how people, in my opinion, have mischaracterized Chris Paul so much. Because what's going to happen is, inevitably, and I already know what's happening. I've tried my best to stay off social media already because I knew I, I had to get this out first before I took in any information. So y'all heard my stance on it. You know what I mean? I didn't want to take in any other outside noise outside of inside the NBA. I didn't want to take out any other, take in any other content from any other source before I... Um, you know, spilled my guts on this podcast, okay? But Chris has a lot of haters, okay? And what's going to happen is, invariably, is they are going to take this performance tonight and his performance in this Dallas series, which I believe was the worst series of his entire career, and they're going to affix it to his lack of postseason success in his career and say, see... I told you Chris Paul wasn't no great player. I told you he was overrated. I told you he's CP0. I told you he couldn't get it done. I told you he's, he, he disappears in crunch time. He disappears in the playoffs. And that's not true. It's true for this series. 
Rip him to shreds for this series. I'm, I'm good with that. But what I'm not good with is people that are going to take this series and try to attach it to the rest of his career and then use that as evidence to suggest that he's not the player that I know that he is. And that he's always been. I mean, he's proven it. But I've given it a lot of thought as to why people don't like Chris. Uh, so, so there's a few things. Okay, people don't like the flopping. People don't like the antics, the complaining with the refs. And they don't like the, you know, the borderline dirty or just dirty play. You know, he's hit a few guys in the junk over the years. So for all those reasons, uh, people don't like him. That's, that's one thing. I think people do get annoyed by the fact that he gets hurt a lot. That's another thing. Um, so I, I get those reasons. But in terms of just strictly speaking on the court, if you, don't, if you watch him and you don't think he's great, you're a fool. I mean, that's pretty much the, the long and short of it. Like, if, if you watch his game and you don't think he, he's excellent, then you just don't know basketball, and there's not really a lot that can be said for that. Like, it just isn't. Now, but why is that, though? Like, I feel like there's a lot of people that just don't like him and they don't like his game or whatever. The conclusion that I came to sometime maybe within the last year is this. Chris Paul is a pass-first point guard. And I think that that often gets lost in the evaluation of Chris. We must always remember he is a pass-first point guard. That is who he is in his DNA. He would rather set up his teammates than score himself. What makes Chris special is that not only, apart from the fact that he's a tenacious defender, but, but not only is he like otherworldly at setting up his teammates for success, he too is a great scorer. The only player in NBA history with 20,000 points and 10,000 assists is Chris Paul. When you compare him to Stockton and Kidd and, and Steve Nash and these guys, Chris Paul scores more points than all those dudes. You know? He gets buckets. And there were a lot of years where he could have been averaging 25, 26, 27 a game if he wanted to. He doesn't want to. And, I, and that gets lost on people. And what I think really drives people crazy is that I love Chris because he's a pass-first point guard who has the ability to rise to the occasion and score when his team needs him to score. But other people just see him as either a point guard in general and there's so many combo guards out there now, like they just see him as a, as a guard. But when they see him have the big scoring outbursts, and then they see Steph Curry averaging like 30 a game or 28 a game, they, don't, they, they, try, they judge him on the same scale, right? So it's like Chris, once in a while, will have a 30-point game. And it's like, wow. And anytime he does that, people are like, wow. But really what it is is that he's a pass-first guy who's looking to set up his teammates primarily. But then on occasion, usually when he has to do it, he can rise up and then he'll score a bunch of points. And that impresses somebody like me. Because I'm like, look at this pass-first point guard bust these dudes' ass in the fourth quarter. Like, that impresses me. But then other people see that and they say, well, he just scored 30 last night. How come he only had 17 the next night? And I think that's where the disconnect lies. The other piece of it is, as my father used to always say, 
He and I used to argue about Jason Kidd back in the day. I liked Jason Kidd. He didn't like Jason Kidd. And not that he didn't like him, but he didn't, you know, he wasn't a big fan of Jason Kidd. And as my dad used to say, the wise, sage individual that he is, he would say, I've always given more credit to the guy who makes the shot versus the guy who passes it to the guy who makes the shot. And I can appreciate that. I, I, can, I get that. I understand that. So, like, if you think Steph Curry's better than Chris Paul because Steph Curry scores a bunch of points, it's like, well, Steph Curry's a two-guard in a point guard's body, and he shoots like a two-guard in terms of volume. Chris doesn't do that. But when Chris has these scoring outbursts, it impresses half of us. And then there's the other half of the population that's like, well, if you did it last night, why don't you do it again tonight? Like, why aren't you averaging 30 a game every night for your team? Like, why don't, like, as much as we credit him myself included for he's taken over these games in the fourth quarter in the playoffs up there's Chris again he scored 12 14 points in the fourth quarter you know but then there's these other games where he just doesn't show up and then I the flaw within me is that maybe I don't criticize him enough for those games where he's not scoring like that like if I'm gonna hold him up for scoring like I don't hold I don't hold his low scoring outputs against him that much because I know he's a pass first point guard that's the point Okay, other people, I think, see him. And when they see all the praise that he gets for when he goes off and scores a bunch of points. And then he comes back the next night and doesn't do that. And then they think that he had a bad game or they hold it against him. And I think that's kind of the disconnect with a lot of folks. That's why they don't rock with Chris Pauls, because they don't understand his approach to the game. They don't understand or appreciate that he's a pass first point guard who would always much rather set up his teammates first. But then when he, when he has to score, it's like, all right, I guess I'll score it in. And then he goes off. That impresses me more. But other people don't view the game that way, and that's fine. So you don't have to love him. You, don't have, you shouldn't hate him either because that's just idiocy. But what we have here is a dude that I think is probably the most snake-bitten great player we've seen in recent history, if not ever. I mean, Chris is a top 75 player. He made that list this year. I mean, if you're ranking guys all time, he's probably in the top 30 at least, you know, knocking on 20, in my opinion, probably. Um, and you can make the case. You can make the case he should be higher than that. I've made the case on this podcast before that Charles Barkley is a top 10 player ever. He doesn't have any championships. So I don't think championships alone is what dictates how great of a player a certain player was. So Chris, in my eyes, Chris has the capacity to go very high on the all-time list. But this series cannot be expunged <laughs> unless he wins a title, I don't think. Like, I mean, this, this has to stay. Much like how when we are sorting through the great players in history and we think about LeBron James, for example, um, you know, we're splitting hairs here, right? So LeBron's great. Jordan's great. You want to compare the two, that's great. For the Jordan people who say, I hate the phrase Jordan would never, but for the people who want to say Jordan would never do what LeBron did against the Dallas Mavericks in the 2011 finals, I'm good with that. And if you want to hold that against LeBron as that's the, that sole performance as the primary reason why you would choose Jordan over LeBron James I'm good with that I actually am not going to argue you for that even though LeBron you know went on a run after that that's 
you could argue is better than anything Jordan ever did. You could make that case. But that one performance was so glaringly bad that it's like, okay, we never saw Mike look like that, especially not at his physical peak, especially not hot potatoing the ball around afraid to shoot like LeBron was in 2011. That's what he was. He just wilted under the lights. And that's what the Suns and Chris Paul did in this series. And so this wilting under the lights thing, it's been unfairly levied against Chris Paul for the majority of his career. But if there was ever a time to affix that to him, it's, it's tonight. And that pains me to say that as arguably one of his biggest fans. I don't even think that's arguable. I am one of his biggest fans. This was, this was gut-wrenching. This was a gut-wrenchingly, devastatingly horrific choke job performance by Chris Paul and the Suns. And I hold Chris responsible. In fact, the blame pie, I would cut it. Chris gets the bulk of the blame. Monty Williams is second, and Booker's third. Booker was not great in this series. I think I may have started to touch on it earlier. Um, I'll pull up his numbers here in a second. But uh, Monty Williams, I put him second because... What really hurt the Suns the most and what really irritated me was that the Suns didn't look prepared in any of the games in Dallas. They came out, they came out with fire in the games in Phoenix. They handled their business. They acted like a team that didn't respect their competition because they went to Dallas and they took those games for granted. And they said, oh, well, we still got home court. Oh, well, we still got home court. And then they won game five by 30, which is probably in hindsight the worst thing that could have happened. Because, again, it caused them to take their opponent for granted. And then they go into game six. And as I mentioned before, Dallas was not impressive to start game six. The game was there to be had. All they had to do was wrap their arms around the throat of that game. And then you would have seen Dallas under pressure because they know their season's on the line. And I think they would have wilted. That's all it would have taken. But no. (laughs) No. it It didn't work out that way. So, and I put that on Monty Williams largely. If you can't inspire your team to play a road playoff game, I mean, come on, man. Like, you knew that all the pressure was going to shift to you if y'all blew game six. And they came out, and they were lifeless in game six. So I put that on Monty Williams. Devin Booker, in this series, I, I would blame him third uh, for this cataclysmic whatever. I think I already, any big word I can come up with. I'm, I'm repeating big words at this point. This shit was so horrific. He averaged 23 a game. He shot 42% from the floor, 34% from three. That's not great for Devin Booker. Um, And almost four turnovers a game. Yikes, I didn't realize he was turning the ball over that much. Um, Yeah, so by his standards, that's a pretty bad series from Devin Booker. If Booker and Chris Paul are both going to have a bad series, he ain't going to win, you know? But the reason why I put this on Chris primarily is because people on Twitter like to mock the Chris Paul leadership thing. But it's a real thing because the, because even with the, the few games that the Suns won at the end of the bubble, the Suns were a non-playoff team before Chris Paul got there. He gets there, and they're in the NBA Finals. That's what happened. They didn't make the playoffs. They add Chris Paul. They're in the NBA Finals. Like, linear, like, like you know, one year to the next. You know what I'm saying? That was the jump. So don't tell me Chris Paul's leadership doesn't matter when Devin Booker and everybody else on that team cites his leadership. But that's where Chris has to be the coach on the floor that he is and rally the troops and show some more leadership, particularly for those road games. And even when he's, you know, and he was under a lot, you know, he had his family getting messed with in the crowd or whatever, and he had that one ridiculous game where they called him for a thousand fouls and like 
Most of them were garbage calls or questionable at best, but he had to be better. He had to be a better leader in those moments, in those dark times where the Suns were facing adversity. They needed his leadership. They needed his steady hand to guide the ship, and it just didn't happen. Even if he's not playing his best, he can still find ways to influence the game, impact the game, or at least lift his teammates up. And it just seemed like particularly for those games in in Dallas, it just didn't happen. And then tonight, where Luka came out hot, but the rest of the Mavericks were just average. And in the, and in the early moments of the game, it was still right there. All they needed to do was have somebody get, get this thing started. Just so the Phoenix would snap out of it and say, okay, we're, okay we're, we're, we, we came out cold, but we righted the ship. Let's play basketball. Let's play Suns basketball, and let's get this thing going. You know, like, That's all they needed. Maybe that's Chris Paul making a couple jumpers. Maybe that's something else. It just didn't come. To, it just didn't happen. And so I put that on Chris. I really do. He stunk as a as a play. His play stunk. And then on top of that, there appeared to be no leadership from the guy who Charles Barkley repeatedly calls the best leader in the NBA. And I would agree with him. But like this, this, this. I mean, there's just no explanation for this. You had way more talent. You had home court. You had no significant injuries. You know that it, there's just no explanation for this. There just is not. Now. The part, again, where I take issue is people trying to say that Chris isn't a great player or whatever. Like, we haven't seen Chris Paul hit multiple game winners in the playoffs. Like, we've seen that. Like, we didn't see him beat Steph Curry in a Game 7 before. Like, we didn't see him beat Tim Duncan and Kawhi Leonard in a Game 7 before on one leg. Like, we didn't see him just two weeks ago go 14 for 14 in a closeout game on the road. Like, we haven't seen him close out the Clippers with, I believe it was 41 points or 40 points or something like that and and no turnover, something crazy. And in the the Denver Nuggets game last year when he closed them out, like, we've seen him put on all-time performances in closeout situations. And, And I think this is kind of where it goes back to, you know, what I said, why people don't like Chris Paul versus why I like Chris Paul is that when... When the chips are down, you know, those closeout games are great, but those his team was up in those series. When the chips are down, because he's not a scoring guy, it's only so much you, in my mind, it's only so much you could ask of him to be like, all right, Chris, I need you to go out and get 40 for us to win tonight. That's not his game. You know what I'm saying? His game is still reliant on the players around him more than other great players because he's a pass-first point guard by nature. So when he has these great moments and he can jump up and hit 40, it's like, oh, that's amazing. But then when his team is down and it's, you know, game seven or it's, you know, it's it's game, you know, six or whatever. And his team is down three, two or whatever. And sometimes he hasn't had those type of epic performances to save his team. But it's because that's just not necessarily his nature. You know what I mean? So, again, I get the the, the two sides of it, but. You know, when I look at Chris Paul's history, you know, one of the stats that you're going to hear people throw out there is that he's blown five 2-0 playoff series leads in his career, which I, I believe is a record. Nobody, nobody's ever been on a team that's lost more series when they were up 2-0. That's a bad distinction to have on your resume. But if we go through those series, you wouldn't, you know, I mean, again... I'm I'm looking at box scores, y'all. So again, not you can't tell everything in a box score. A box score doesn't tell the whole story. But we're talking box scores of a series after his team was up 2-0. And I think 
that gives you a pretty accurate depiction of the type of player that he was from that point forward. The first one he lost was in 2008. Games 3 through 7 against the Spurs, he averaged 24 points, 10 assists, 5 rebounds, and he shot 50% from the field. And he was a baby. He was in his third year, I think, and that was his first year actually leading a team into the playoffs. And that was going against the Spurs, who were the defending champions that year. So they lost that series, but it's like, you know, are we really going to pin that on him? That was the first one. The second one came in 2013. Uh, This was his second year with the Clippers. Um, They won the first two games, but in the last... Four, they lost four straight. And in the last four games, Chris averaged 22.5 points, 5.5 assists, 4.5 rebounds, shot over 51% from the floor, two steals a game, less than two turnovers a game. So the assist numbers were down, but he was still balling. Okay? And it's also worth noting that Blake Griffin got hurt in the middle of that series. I believe it was either between game four or game five. He got hurt. He was a shell of himself, basically hobbling around out there by game six. And again, going back to the pass first thing, he's usually not the leading scorer on his team. So if the leading scorer on his team gets hurt, it disproportionately hurts Chris Paul's team's chances more than it would another team. Because that's his thing is setting up that other great player to score you know like if if if, if Carmelo Anthony's uh he's an all-time scorer right so if Carmelo Anthony's number two he's gonna always lead his team in scoring but if his second score next to him is hurt it's gonna it's gonna have an impact for sure but I think it's gonna impact somebody like Chris more because he relies so heavily on getting those other guys involved and getting them the ball and if he's down his number one score now he has to do all the scoring and all the assisting it's, it's a lot, you know? Um, and sometimes great players can pull that off, you know? So, so I get that too, but I'm just saying. The third time he blew a 2-0 series lead was against Portland in 2016. Uh, that series, the, uh, the Clippers and Chris Paul won the first two games by 20-plus points, and then they lost four straight. Well, it was in that series that Blake Griffin got hurt. And then Chris Paul himself got hurt. So Chris Paul didn't even play in games five and six. He only played in games three and four after the 2-0 series lead. And Blake and CP both got hurt. Is it any coincidence that they lost that series? And even in those two games, games three and four, Chris still averaged 21 points, six and a half assists, three steals a game, one turnover, and shot almost 49% from the field. So, I mean, he got hurt in the second, the, the, the second of those two games. But he was still putting up good numbers, right? But if he's down and Blake's down, then yeah, of course they're going to lose that series. The fourth instance of blowing a 2-0 series lead was against the Bucks in the finals last year. And there were a lot of people that blamed Chris for that. And they said, up, oh, Chris Paul, not, not a closer, not a, not a big game player, all that stuff. So after games one and two, where Chris scored 32 and 23 points respectively, for the rest of the series, Chris averaged 19 points, eight assists, shot 54% from the field, 45% from three. I mean, turnover still a little high. He had over three turnovers a game. But in a season where he was averaging like 16 a game, he averaged 19 a game with eight assists and 54% shooting and 45 from three in games three through six of that series 
And one of those games, he was horrendous. That was game four, I believe. Chris Paul was terrible in game four. He scored 10 points. So if you remove that game from the equation, if you look at games three, five, and six, he was he was over 23 points a game or thereabout. So, I mean, I don't, you know what I'm saying? I, you're seeing a pattern here. Like, and, and again, it, it took an all-time performance from Giannis. It took Chris Paul having COVID and having a busted uh, uh, a torn ligaments in, in his shooting hand, and then his left wrist needed surgery. Like, he had a stinger on his shoulder in the playoffs on his shooting arm. Like, he had a lot going on in those playoffs, and he still put up decent numbers against Drew Holiday and one of the best defensive teams in the league last year. So, when you look at those four scenarios where he was up 2-0 and his team lost, really not that, not as bad as it sounds. Then when you factor in, okay, he had that loss to uh, the Rockets where the Rockets came back and, and beat the Suns and they had that huge deficit that they overcame in game six and they ended up losing in seven. That series, Chris Paul didn't play it in the first two games of that series because he had uh, a bum hamstring that he had hurt in game seven against the Spurs previously. So he missed the first two games of that series in 2015. But when they had that monster comeback and the Rockets outscored with James Harden on the bench, mind you, the Rockets outscored the Suns, or excuse me, outscored the Clippers 40-15 to 15 in the fourth quarter. That was game six. In that fourth quarter, the Suns, <laughs> I said it again, the Clippers scored 15 points as a team, which is horrendous. Chris Paul had nine of the 15 points. But, I mean, Blake Griffin and DeAndre Jordan were scoreless. Uh, you know, Matt Barnes, Jamal Crawford, Big Baby Davis, they were all scoreless in that quarter. But Chris Paul had nine of the 15. You know, it wasn't for a lack of trying on his part. A nine-point quarter is actually pretty excellent. Just It just so happened that Corey Brewer and Josh Smith went off and hit, like, five threes in that quarter, you know? Um and that, and that just never happened before. And then they went back to Houston and lost game seven. But they pinned that on Chris. He was playing with a, with a less than 100% hamstring. And just some fluky stuff like that happened. I don't pin that on him the way that most people do. And then the year before that, in 2014, they lost a difficult series to Oklahoma City where they were up. The series was tied at two. And Chris fell apart in game five. And everybody holds that against him. Well, in that game, he had 17 points and 14 assists. But really what it was was a, a, a sequence in the final minute where Chris had uh, two turnovers and he fouled Russell Westbrook on a three. Um, but if you go back and look at that sequence, Chris actually hit a clutch jumper to seemingly put the Clippers ahead for the game with about 40 seconds left. And then after that, Chris had a really, really dumb turnover. One of the worst, probably the worst turnover of his career at that point uh, in that game that led to a basket for Oklahoma City, right? Or I think it was, actually, I think it went, it went out of bounds. The ball went out of bounds. But I promise you guys, if you look this game up on YouTube, game five of the 2014 Western Conference semifinals between the Clippers and Thunder, Chris Paul turns it over. It was horrible. But there's a deflection and the ball goes out of bounds. And the replay review clearly shows <laughs> that the ball went off Oklahoma City. And take a listen to this. Look to me like it was off Jackson. 
Y'all hear that? That was Steve Kerr saying that it looked like the ball was off Reggie Jackson of the Thunder. Back when Steve Kerr used to be a color commentator, of course, for TNT. I mean, the reason why he thought that was because the ball was off Reggie Jackson. At least every angle that they showed, and they reviewed it, every angle that they showed, it, it, the best angles showed that the ball was off Reggie Jackson, and they awarded the Thunder the ball, and the Thunder ended up scoring on that possession. And then there was another possession uh, after that. Actually, when they scored, it was on a three-pointer by Westbrook that Chris Paul fouled him on. Westbrook got three free throws and made them all. If you look at that replay, there's no contact that you can see on that play. And then on the final play of the game, Chris Paul is stripped and turned the ball over. But even that play looked like it could have been a foul. That play was 50-50. It went against Chris Paul. The other one on the other end against Westbrook was 50-50. It went against Paul. The out-of-bounds play was 50-50. That went against Paul. And... To me, that was a colossal failure by the officiating crew. Uh, none of those were definitive in, to be in favor of Oklahoma City, but all of those calls went Oklahoma City's way. Chris Paul, really only the one mistake that he made that was really egregious was that first turnover where Westbrook stripped him, which resulted in the out-of-bounds play with Reggie Jackson. So I'm not going to kill him for one turnover, but he still gets killed for that game to this day. And that just, I mean, it just he just does. And so... Again, man, if you if you really dive into the history of Chris Paul, the 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 bad performances aren't as bad as people make them out to be. And I love pointing that out until tonight. That's what makes tonight so difficult. Because there's no excuse. Unless we find out later that he was hurt, there was no excuse. This was bad, man. I don't even I'm going to have to end this podcast because it's late. And I didn't even want to edit this thing. I just wanted to kind of get into a quick and dirty, just just spit it out and just get it out of my system. And hopefully this will be cathartic. I wanted to talk about the other series, but I ran out of time running my yap about Chris Paul and the Suns, man. I'm so disappointed in this team. They're like a, a child, like, like your own child let you down. That's how I felt watching this game. Um, I'm still going to ride for Chris, and I'm going to defend him against people who try to attach this series to the rest of his career. Because here's the thing. Great players have bad series all the time. We talked about LeBron James already. We know Magic Johnson had the, the Tragic Johnson series back in the 80s. That was a moment where he dribbled out the clock, but like he, he was bad that whole series. Um, you know, We know that Kobe's been bad. We saw the 04 Pistons series. Kobe was horrendous. Um, we've seen Kevin Durant this year was terrible. <laughs> he was terrible against the Celtics. So like, you can be a great player and have a bad series. That's fine. But people are going to take this series and try to project that onto Chris Paul's career and say, this is who he's always been. And it's not true. If you look into it, it's really not the case. It was a series of unfortunate events. Most of them are injury because what I didn't talk about and all those playoff shortcomings with the amount of times that either he or his best player, best teammate got injured. And that happened a lot. So if you throw all those out, which I think is reasonable to throw those out, then we're looking at, you know, a, a comeback against the the Rockets where he did as much as he could do, but they miraculously got hot from three with a bunch of guys who never got hot from three. Or you have we boil it down to one turnover in a game against Oklahoma City that was legitimate. And that's not enough to convict this guy of being a choke artist. It's called a black-
Having said that, this was a choke job of epic proportion, and Chris will never live this down. Chris actually lost a playoff game before by like almost 60 points. Most of y'all probably don't know that, you know, but that happened. But his team was grossly overmatched in that game in, in 09 against the Nuggets. This year, I mean, they, they were the favorites to win. They were the prohibitive favorites going into the playoffs, and now they're going to be sitting at home with the rest of us. I'm Jay Hicks, y'all. Thank y'all for listening. Um, come back at y'all again. Maybe we'll talk some Kendrick, talk the rest of the playoffs or the finals or something. I don't know what I'm going to do yet. I have another piece I've been sitting on, uh, at least with idea for it. I just don't have the time to write it. I really don't have the time to do anything. Y'all. That's why I'm doing this podcast, and it's 1 in the morning now. And I got to get up and do a presentation for work in the morning. So uh, that's after I drop my kids off. So, you know, life goes on, I guess. But uh, shout out to the Dallas Mavericks for, for doing what most people thought they couldn't do. And um, shame on the Phoenix Suns because they're about to get roasted like you've never seen. And they deserve it. They deserve it. Be fascinating stuff to watch. Celtics Heat, Mavs Warriors. Drop us a line. Let us know who y'all think about to win the NBA Finals. I'd love to hear about it. Let me know who you think is going to win the Larry Bird and Magic Johnson trophy for conference MVP. If they did that last year, Chris Paul would have won it. it just, shit's crazy. Anyway, I'm out of here, y'all. Why am I defending this guy? He had the worst moment of his career, and I spent half the podcast defending him. I don't know. Don't judge me. We out of here. Peace. <laughs>